created. That's just how we practice it. <laughs> so if you weren't able to join us uh, this morning, or if this morning already feels like it was a long time ago, Mike preached from Luke 17. In Luke 17, Jesus is asked the question, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus answers that the kingdom of God, meaning Jesus' reign or kingship over his redeemed people, has already begun. Jesus has already shown his authority by driving out demons, performing miracles, healing the sick, and even raising the dead. But Jesus also points to a future time when, after his death and resurrection, his reign over the world will come in full. When God's kingdom is fully realized and consummated, sin will be judged, death will be banished, and God's people will live forever in God's presence for eternity. Jesus then says that no one knows when he will return to earth to fulfill his eternal reign. There will be no special announcement that God's kingdom is at hand, and people will not have time to repent before God undertakes to judge sin. In Luke 17, 26 and 27, Jesus explains this with a historical analogy. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. We're going to think tonight about why Jesus chose the days of Noah to foreshadow the arrival of the final expression of God's kingdom. Our focus is just on two verses, Genesis 6, 17, and 18, but they are a microcosm of the gospel itself. We'll have two main points. First, God promises to judge, and second, God promises to save. Please turn to Genesis 6 on page 5 in the Pew Bibles, and I encourage you to keep that page open. Our passage comes right after God has given Noah specific instructions about how to build the ark, but he's not yet told Noah why. Our first point, God promises to judge, comes from verse 17. God declares, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to de destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. So we should ask, why does God send the flood? And to answer, we have to understand how God saw the world in Noah's day. Let's look at verse 11. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. The sinful world that God saw was not the one he created. During the account of creation, the writer of Genesis says six times that God looked out over what he'd made and God saw that it was good. But what does God see now? Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Likewise, whereas God told the first humans to fill the earth and exercise authority over it, now, instead, the earth is 
filled with violence. And just as these verses tell us, sin disordered not only people's hearts, but the earth itself. Moreover, God knew that there was no hope that things would somehow get better on their own. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. How does God respond to the sinfulness of the world? Let's look at verses 12 and 13. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. To understand the emphasis of this passage, it helps to recognize that the verbs translated here as corrupt and destroy are the same word in Hebrew, which means to spoil or disfigure. So God is saying that just as all flesh had spoiled or disfigured the earth in verse 12, so God will spoil or disfigure all flesh in verse 13. Destruction is the natural consequence of sin. Just as Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. People have, through their sin, disfigured the good plan that God had created. And God is just to eliminate this distortion to his good creation. Sin is like an outside force intruding into the world that God created, and he is entitled to wipe it out. And since the Bible confirms that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we have to ask, if the sin in Noah's day warranted destruction, then what about in our day? Is this a difficult message for you? It is for many, um, Christians and non-Christians alike. Do you think that God judges sin too harshly? Even if you answer that question, no, do you feel emotionally like God is being unfair to punish sin? Should people's good deeds cancel out their bad ones? Do you believe that your own heart is naturally inclined toward evil apart from God's grace? Unfortunately, one of the effects of sin is that we fail to appreciate the gravity of sin the way that God does. We, like people throughout history, make our own moral rules and then judge ourselves by them. We use our standards instead of God's standard. And even when we try to follow God's word, we're so surrounded by brokenness and evil that we find ourselves relativizing sin. We tell ourselves a little sin is not really that bad. But God is morally perfect and holy, and he is not so tempted. God takes sin very seriously, and he will punish sin fully and finally as it deserves, not with a mere slap on the wrist or half measures, but with cataclysmic, apocalyptic destruction, like the kind foreshadowed in the flood. But even though God would be right to condemn our sin, just as he condemned the sin in Noah's day, condemnation is not the final word in Noah's day or our own. Verse 17 ended with God telling Noah, everything on earth will perish. And yet God continues speaking. Verse 18. I, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
And this is our second point. God promises to save. Why did God save Noah? Let's look at verse 9, which tells us, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Being righteous means that Noah was pious and ethical, and being blameless implies that he abstained from sin. The word blameless in the Bible does not mean sinless. All have sinned, as we said before. And in fact, the Bible later appears to recount an example of Noah's own sin. Rather, blameless simply means that Noah feared God and turned away from evil. As a sinner, Noah was not good enough to deserve salvation. Rather, verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, God favored Noah. God did it. And God's decision to graciously save Noah is underscored in verse 18 itself, where God takes the initiative to establish a covenant with Noah. This passage is important um, in part because it's the first time the word covenant is used in scripture. A biblical covenant is a promise administered by God himself, and covenants are one of the main ways that God administers or governs his relationship with his people. Later in the Bible, God covenants with Abraham, with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and with David. And ultimately, God promises a new covenant between him and his people in the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke about in Luke. The specific promise God makes here, however, is to protect Noah and his family from the flood. Noah builds the ark as God instructed, and then God himself closes the door, sealing Noah, his family, and the animals safely inside. The flood does indeed destroy all life, and for 150 days, the ark bobs on an endless expanse of water, rudderless and helpless. One can imagine during this time, day after day, whether Noah feared that he had been forgotten. Then in, verse, uh, then in Genesis 8.1, we're told, but God remembered Noah. God is true to his covenant. He makes the water subside and the survivors disembark. Then after the flood, in Genesis 9, God enters into another covenant with Noah plus his descendants, that's us, and all living things. This covenant reaffirms much of what God had instructed humans at creation. For example, Noah and his family are reminded that humans are made in God's image, and they're told to be fruitful and multiply. This is reminiscent of what God told Adam and Eve, but we soon discover that the world after the flood is still far different from how God created it. Sin remains and will remain in the world. And in fact, sin quickly reexerts itself after the flood as Noah's own son sins against him. So if the flood did not eliminate sin from the world, what was the point? One answer comes from the way that Jesus uses this Noah story in our passage from Luke. The flood is a powerful example for us today of God's judgment of sin and his promise to save people from that judgment in spite of their sin. The flood leaves no doubt about how serious sin is to God serious enough to destroy the earth, but for one family and a sampling of animals. And although God in Genesis 9 says that never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth, God has also promised that there will be a future final judgment of all sin. 
God wants so much for us to understand this pattern of judgment for sin, followed by salvation by God's grace, that is repeated several times in Scripture, including the destruction of Sodom, where Lot and his family escape, and the Babylonians' destruction of Jerusalem, after which God allows a remnant to return to rebuild the city. The Apostle Peter explains that the flood foreshadows the final judgment, which will accompany Jesus' second coming. He writes in 2 Peter 3, 5 through 7, By God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But these waters also, uh, by these waters, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the days of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God created the world, he judged sin and destruction with his destruction in the flood, and he will judge sin again. This time for the last time. But Noah's story is also one of hope. Noah's family tree leads to Jesus, the final savior, fully God and fully man. Jesus paid, Jesus lived a perfect life and did not merit any penalty or death. He took on himself the penalty and judgment that our sin deserved. Jesus paid our debt so that God could see us debtless on account of him. Therefore, although the wages for our sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. Jesus bore God's wrath against sin for all those who put their trust in him, and thus whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Baptism. When new believers are ceremonially submerged in water and then raised up, is a reminder that of the way that Jesus has saved us for judgment of sin, patterned on the flood itself. Let me read from 1 Peter 3, 20-21, where Peter writes, God's patience waited in the day of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a symbolic reminder of that we, like the people in Noah's day, deserve drowning. But God saves us from a watery grave and gives us new life. Once more, God promises to save people for himself, and he can be trusted to keep his promise. Having read from God's word, we should ask ourselves how our lives should be changed by the story of Noah. Let me briefly offer three ways. First, if you're not a Christian and you're curious about Christianity, but you've been too busy to find the time to seriously meditate on your beliefs or to talk with a Christian friend, Noah's story should give you a sense of urgency. First Thessalonians 5, 2-4 tells us a similar message uh, to Luke 17. Writing to Christians, Paul says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Friends, peace and security are illusions. No one knows when God will see fit to render final judgment against sin. And even if that day is delayed, the Bible confronts us with the unavoidable truth that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
do not put off seeking the salvation that God graciously offers you in Jesus Christ. Come and take refuge in Jesus by turning from your sin and by believing that he lived, died, and was raised again for your salvation from God's just judgment. Second, and relatedly for Christians, we should share the gospel urgently. In preaching on the story of Noah, Charles Spurgeon observed that, quote, when a man gets to fear for others so that his heart cries out, they will perish, they will perish, they will sink to hell, they will be forever banished from the presence of the Lord. And when this fear oppresses his soul and weighs him down, and then drives him to go out and preach with tears, oh, then he will plead with men as to prevail. Christian, do not leave for tomorrow words that could be said today. Third, we should, like Noah, live lives that show that we actually believe that God keeps his promise to save us and make us citizens in his eternal kingdom. Noah started building the ark in obedience to God years before it began starting to rain. Likewise, we should intentionally invest our money, time, and energy in ways that advance God's kingdom and therefore have eternal significance. This includes supporting missions work, serving others in the local church, uh, discipling fellow Christians, and obeying Jesus' command to tend to the physical as well as spiritual needs of the sick, the poor, the lonely, and the orphaned, thereby foreshadowing the perfect and just kingdom of God. To conclude, in a few moments we're going to take the Lord's Supper. As we do, let's remember that it is a symbol of God's promises of judgment and salvation. The bread is his body, broken in payment for our sin, and the wine is his blood, a sign of the new covenant, um, the new covenant in which he saves his people from their sin forever. These are the twin truths that were displayed in the flood, and we remind ourselves of them by taking the Lord's Supper together tonight. Friends, we should not be surprised when God's judgment comes, and we should rest in the confidence that God will keep his word and save us through Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Dear God, thank you for warning us of the deadly seriousness of our sin. And thank you for the offering of salvation extended by and completed by Jesus Christ. Awaken our hearts, Lord, to the grandeur and glory of your ways in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.